Hello and welcome to the Marketing Mashup Podcast. This podcast is where we bring you the most interesting perspectives on marketing from some of the best minds in the industry. In this series, we've got agency directors, startup founders, and some of the people who are away in these trenches delivering the marketing campaigns. We might also grab some perspectives from people outside of the marketing, so let's mash it up. I've got a fantastic guest with me today, Mark Ronicus. Mark is the co-founder and planning partner of Waxon, a new kind of hybrid creative media agency. Previously, he was one of the owners of Karmarama, the UK's leading independent creative agency. Mark is a man of many hats. Alongside his creative media agency, he champions best practice in digital and data-driven marketing in his role as non-executive chair of the DMA Group. He's also the president of Pride.am, the world's first advertising LGBT plus network, lobbying for LGBT plus diversity in marketing and advertising. Mark, I've given you a little bit of an introduction there. I'd love to set the scene a little bit more. Can you give an introduction to yourself, a little whistle-stop tour of your career, where you've been and how you are, uh, where you are now? I'm not actually very good at this, but luckily I was on stage the other day and so I can remember what I said. And I remember that I said, I'm an anxious planner. Uh, so, and I know that sounds silly, but it's true. It's kind of... Um, I changed my career uh, quite a few years ago, um, and it was a bold move. So I'd grown up as, uh, we call them suits. Is that a, a word that suits exists in your kind yeah. of age suits group? Term, yeah. Okay, fine. I know, I know it's a TV program <laughs> as well. Um, but, so I grew up as a suit, uh, but having started into advertising, wanting to be a creative but being told quite soon that I would be a mediocre creative. And I'm not, it's not, I'm not, this is not the kind of, um, I'm not trying to tug at the heartstrings, but I think that was a very sensible piece of advice given to me by the first very clever creative director I worked with. So he said, he said I'd be a mediocre creative. In those days, planners didn't exist. And eventually I taught myself to be a planner. But I've been an anxious planner ever since because I'm not quite sure whether I'm worthy of the job title surrounded as I am often by people who have degrees in psychology you know and all those things that make understanding consumer behavior much easier than me a working class kid from Nottinghamshire who got a degree in Spanish Uh, (laughs) um, so that's the kind of whistle stop tour I was lucky that uh, it was when I was working at Ogilvy I think two things happened to me there which led me to where I am to, to today. One was being given a job that was kind of doing itself. And so I'm the kind of guy who likes to keep busy. So I inadvertently got involved in strategy and planning. And the other was were, uh, joining a business that then, in that moment in time, was quite an open um, and inclusive environment. Ogilvy then was run by a woman globally, and it also had had a very strong Jewish cultural background, so it was clearly open to all kinds of backgrounds. And quietly, it was also pretty gay too. And so that was when I was looking at, uh, in those days, we had 
a book as a phone directory. It was literally a several hundred page book. And David Ogilvy had bequeathed us a mentality called the red carpet, which was um, as one of the best global networks in the world. The idea was you would welcome your fellow uh, colleagues from Ogilvy and your global clients with open arms as if they were part of the family. And one of the ways that he taught us to do that was in the directory, you listed you, yourself, your home address, and your partner's details. Because the idea was, James, if you were flying over to my office in Copenhagen for business, then I would give you all my contact details. I'd probably meet you at the airport, and I'd take you to the Ogilvy office in Copenhagen, and I'd invite you home for dinner, and you'd meet my family. Um, and that's a great way to, to kind of create a really powerful culture, a welcoming, inclusive culture, even though we probably didn't use those words then. Um, and then as I flicked through the book, I noticed there were several same-sex couples noted in the details of the senior managers and their partners. I thought, it's okay to be gay here. So that's kind of where I came out. So I have to thank Ogilvy for giving me the opportunity to become a planner. And I have to thank Ogilvy for giving me the courage to come out as well. So that's me, anxious gay planner. <laughs> Brilliant. And I think if anyone wants to hear more of your creative media and plan inside of you, I think your podcast would be a good place to start. I love your podcast. Uh, it, it really is good fun. So I'll leave a link to that in thank the you. show notes. Yeah, we, um, we need more listeners. Yeah, well, <laughs> as we all do, we need to cross-promote each other's no, de- audio platforms, don't definitely. we? And I, I think um, with podcasting going the way it is now, um, Mark, your podcast is definitely one I'd love people to listen to because you, you go ab- above and beyond um, what other people do for, for podcasts with the actual production value. And I, th- I think that's really important. I think in this episode, we're going to dive into a little bit more of the work you do for Pride AM and how we can sort of spread the message there a little bit more. Could you tell me a little bit more about what Pride AM is and, and what you do there? Um, so Pride AM, uh, we start with, uh, as a marketer, a tough name to work with because people think when you talk about Pride, it's linked to the Pride marches and the Pride events. Uh, and it's not. Um, uh, and I wasn't there at the beginning. Pride AM stands for Pride in Advertising and Marketing. And I wasn't there at the beginning. I think it was uh, a conversation uh, around 2015, I think. And I think, a bit unfortunately, it was a conversation that started in Cannes. And I have to say, I'm conflicted about the whole Cannes experience. Uh, but we'll come back to that. That's is why I say I'm conflicted about it. It was a conversation that started at Cannes, and I think some alpha gays who were over in Cannes uh, got together, as they probably do, uh, over a, a bottle of rosé. Have you been to Cannes? No. Does, does the whole rosé thing make sense to you? Do, no. I, do I need to explain? Explain it. Um, again, as I say, <laughs> I only went for the first time last year. It is the drink of choice in Cannes. Everybody mm, yeah. just drinks rosé like it's just going out of style. I don't know why. It's part of the whole thing. We, we, we could debate the rights and wrongs of Cannes endlessly. Um, so I'm sure they were kind of chatting about, you know, they're, they're, there they were in Cannes drinking rosé and they were gay, lesbian, bisexual, whatever orientation they were, and realised there was no community for the advertising and marketing kind of group uh, that they knew of. 
Uh, and so they, as a group of alpha gays, decided to kind of set, set one up. And so they did. And um, it was, therefore, a network. You know, there's lots of, dare I say, minority networks in the, in the workplace nowadays. But believe it or not, back in 2015, there was no LGBT network in advertising. As far as they knew and as far as I know, at all, anywhere in the world. And that I'm a bit ashamed of as a marketer that certainly other professions like the legal profession, uh, the accounting professions as, as well, they have had LGBTQ networks for quite some time. So first real red flag, why hasn't advertising done that? You know, Some might say, oh, you know, it's so welcoming that we don't need it. I'm not quite sure. I think there has been and still is to a lesser degree, thankfully. I think there had been for quite a long time an insidious prejudice in our advertising community. Uh, you know, the statistics even today bear that out. Only 12, 13%, I've forgotten the exact figures now, uh, women reach creative director level in our world. Uh, only about the same percentage, slightly more, I think, uh, people from the BAME community are in our advertising space too. And we don't actually count the LGBTQ community, which I know is difficult, but it, it could be done, so it's an excuse. Um, so I think, yeah, they, they were, it, it, it had its time. Um, and as the network evolved, because like so many communities, uh, they have to find their identity and if anybody is thinking of setting up any kind of workplace community, any kind of workplace network, um, the first piece of advice I would give them is to establish your purpose. Why are you here? It's not sufficient. It's not sustainable to get together once a month and have a chat because you'll soon run out of energy. And when Pride AM was having its own identity issues, um, it actually quite quickly shifted from being that networking support group thing to being actually what I think some of my colleagues would say actually now it's a lobbying organization um, because in its aims which are now on the website and you can take a look at which is prideam.org you'll see that it's all about striving to ensure that the LB LGBT community is fairly represented in mainstream ad advertising and if I may, I just want to explain why I said those words, because I chose my words yeah, very carefully. Because the other objective is to surface and to demonstrate progressive role models. And we can only do that if we're doing that in mainstream advertising. So it's, it, it, what we're clearly not doing is encouraging brands only to advertise to the LGBTQ community. That's important, and I would say that is one step towards embracing inclusion and diversity. Um, but our objective is, is to ensure that brands communicate effectively and portray progressive LGBTQ lifestyles in their mainstream advertising so that everybody gets to see, people like me, people like my non-binary, gender-fluid, queer, transgender friends and colleagues, that everybody gets to see those in advertising because 
you know, I, I could introduce you to a whole range of people who are maybe a little bit younger than me who say how influential advertising has been in terms of helping them create role models and how sad it is that there is a massive vacuum in terms of how advertising did not therefore help them create positive LGBTQ role models because for so long you know advertising had the it was obsessed with the 2.2 kind of straight white uh, kind of family nuclear family thing it is changing um, but I would say that I actually want brands to go much further now and I am restless and I sort of insist that brands over-represent the LGBTQ community in their ad advertising because only by over-representing will we achieve the kind of social change at the kind of speed that I think we need. Particularly, you know, we're recording this in the midst of Brexitation and populism and divisiveness. And, you know, we're relatively co cocooned in the UK, but you know, as well as anybody else, how, you know, even in Europe and beyond, the, the prejudice is actually increasing and mm. it's quite a worrying phenomenon. So that's why I think only by over-representation will we actually change attitudes. And I know that it's not just about the LGBTQ community, it's about the BAME community, the disabled community, ageism, gender, you know, brands should have a joined up inclusion and diversity strategy. But I can only authentically sit here and talk about, well, actually, I can only authentically sit here and talk about being a white gay man. But, you know, I hope I can speak with some experience on behalf of the broader LGBTQ community as well. So how do you think brands can over-represent? So what does that actually mean for them? So it means what I don't want them to, to do is to sit in their planning meetings and go, oh, well, we've done the gay thing. Like it is in a checkbox. Yeah, you know, we did that. We, do you remember that Christmas ad where we had those two guys kind of touching each other, you know, <laughs> uh, as they were kind of sipping their eggnog by the Christmas tree. So we don't need to do that again for three years. That's what I mean by over-representing. I want them to be conscious of it in every communication. And the other thing to remember is that a campaign isn't only a TV ad. Great that we can get some brands to surface LGBTQ lifestyles in a TV ad, but every marketer has loads of other expressions, loads of other opportunities to create content. So where's the LGBTQ stuff in your digital advertising? Where's the LGBTQ stuff in your CRM? Where's the LGBTQ stuff in your PR, in your content? You know, it could go anywhere. So that's why I want them to have an always-on approach to their inclusion and diversity as far as their advertising and marketing content is con concerned. And to over-represent, not to just go, well, do you know what, only according to... Um, the national statistics, only 2% of the UK population is LGBTQ. Well, first of all, that's not correct. Um, uh, second of all, any uh, psychologist will tell you that because the LGBTQ community is still relatively prejudiced, they underrepresent when they're asked to talk about 
their sexual and gender identity in surveys. Um, more conservative estimates, I would say, certainly there's a couple of studies you could Google uh, by YouGov talk about the LGBTQ community being anywhere between 10 and maybe even 20%. And depending where you live, those figures will get, get higher. There's one statistic that I quote quite frequently, which is slightly different, but I think it is very indicative of the way we have misunderstood our population from a, a sexual and gender identity point of view. And that's uh, the Kinsey scale, which if you haven't heard of it, go and Google that. It is a very short and simple questionnaire that helps you understand where you sit on a continuum of sexual orientation. So at one end of the scale, you could be 100% straight, and at the other end of the scale, you could be 100% not straight, because I won't choose a binary term for that, mm -hmm. because you know we're moving into a place where it's quite complicated. And three or four years ago, when YouGov did this study, and it's a proper YouGov big survey, 49% of 18 to 25-year-olds said they were not 100% straight. When they did it again last year, that had increased to 54% mm. of 18 to 25-year-olds saying they were not 100% straight. So if I was a brand manager who had any kind of, needed to have any connection with that age cohort, I would be seriously reconsidering how I view my audience because basically half of your audience don't think in a traditional gender sexual orientation way anymore. They think very differently. And so when you and your creative agency and your media agency are talking about who's our audience? Oh, ABC1, you know, male, ABC1, it's, it's rubbish. And I know it's challenging but, for a marketer, but that's, that, that's one of the starkest realities. And that's why I think we need to change the way that we think about representing our consumers, whether in mm. re real terms or aspirationally, in our marketing and in our advertising. So you've got brands that might be a little bit more traditional in their approach and they're, they're not massively inclusive. How do you think the best way to approach them is? Or are you, or are you more sort of looking at um, brands that have started to be more inclusive and then look at how they can change and start um, being more diverse with, with their advertising? Uh, what, what's sort of the best approach there? And how would you tackle those more traditional brands that, that aren't being as inclusive as they could? So we did a bit of research, or very kindly, because Pride AM, I didn't point out, but I should point out, has no money. And it's not, it's, that's not a kind of a, a begging bowl comment. Uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, we're all volunteers. All, all the network have day jobs in marketing and, and advertising. Actually, most of them. That's, that's not fair. Because we are, we are ourselves as inclusive as possible. We say, you don't, you know, come and help out, roll your sleeves up, come and do stuff. You don't even have to work in marketing and advertising. Just as long as you have an interest in it, it's important. You know, uh, if we are to work with our colleagues in that space, you have to have some passion for it, some understanding of it. Um, but um, I think we look at it in two different ways. First of all, there is um, 
those brands who, as our research pointed out, are most lacking. And the research that we had donated uh, for us, very kindly by a great research business called Simpson Carpenter, it pointed out that according to consumers, this again was a piece of statistically significant research, amongst the general population, uh, they told us that the two categories that seem less, least inclusive from an LGBTQ point of view are automotive and DIY retailing. Uh, when you kind of say, you kind of think, yeah, they probably are the most stereotypically masculine mm-hmm. kind of areas, aren't they? Uh, and at the other extreme, it was difficult for the research to pick out a sector that was doing it really well, but the sectors that were doing better were fashion, cosmetics, and that space, which again yeah, doesn't yeah. sound wrong, does it? And yeah, you think about the ad, yeah. you can see the boots ads and the L'Oreal's and all this kind of, even though L'Oreal had their own slightly controversial um, <laughs> relationship with the LGBTQ community. Um, but so depending which end of the spectrum you're, you're on, I think it, it doesn't really matter. It depends whether that brand is starting out on its journey whether that brand is doing stuff. So let's talk about starting out on the journey. So, you know, if I were an automotive brand, let's say, and they'd heard me or they'd read one of my colleagues talking about the fact that that's one of the spaces that must try harder as far as their LGBTQ school report might say, um, then I think the first thing I would do is, not I, I think, I know, the first thing I would really strongly recommend they, they do is to look inside. Um, so most of them would have either manufacturing functions in the, in the UK. You know, most automotive brands have some kind of either assembly or whatever. And so I would say, is your manufacturing workforce, which is the real bedrock of your organization is that workforce inclusive and if it isn't then you know start there uh do you have an lgbt network lgbtq network in your manufacturing in your workplace if you don't then start doing that so it's that classic piece of pr advice don't talk about stuff externally if you can't validate it internally so Look at that. And then assuming that you have got all that kind of stuff going, uh, then talk to that community. Talk to your LGBTQ colleagues and say, hey, we're thinking of taking our advertising into a more inclusive space, a joined up strategy. So as I said, not just LGBTQ, obviously. So I'll assume that, that they'll be doing other stuff too. But in this particular occasion, we want to talk about LGBTQ representation in our advertising. How do you think we should do it? How would you like this brand that you work for, you're manufacturing the cars, how would you like this brand to talk about itself uh, and talk about it in a way that is relevant to the LGBTQ community, but also is, remains relevant to everybody else, re- remains relevant to all progressive consumers? And it'd be interesting to hear what they have to say. And then maybe take your ideas to them when you're working with your creative agency and your media partners. Go back to your own internal LGBTQ network. Keep them... And and what will happen, I promise you, is what will happen is they will become advocates for the work. And then a lot of brands say, 
privately that one of the reasons they don't fully embrace um, LGBTQ friendly work, they don't fully embrace being brave with that work. And sometimes the work becomes a little bit diluted. It's because they're scared. They're scared of getting it wrong. Because the one thing I will say about the LGBTQ community is it's very diverse in itself. And, you know, I could get a group of LGBTQ colleagues together, show them some work, and I'll get a whole range of opinions <laughs> about whether that work is great or not, or whether it's stereotyping. But to be honest, you and I could get a group of mates together with some pizza and beer and watch some ads, and, you know, we won't have a, a, a united opinion about them anyway. So it's not particularly unusual. But nevertheless, lots of, some, lots of brands are concerned about getting it wrong. But the reason for having those ready-made advocates inside the workplace is that you can quickly and powerfully turn that into voices, a very loud, resounding support sound from those people. And thankfully, in the United Kingdom, we tend not to get backlashes. It still does happen, still does happen in the United States. And they can be really quite scary. You know, over the past 18 months, there's been backlashes against Campbell's Soup, who did an LGBTQ-friendly campaign in the States. And millions of Americans signed petitions to stop buying Campbell's Soup because they just didn't agree with it. Tends not to happen here. But in the unlikely event that it did, taking the steps that I've just said, I think will actually help you. So, assuming you're a brand who hasn't done LGBTQ stuff, that's kind of where I would start. If you're further down the line, then, you know, you won't be surprised, James, to hear me say that that's where I start saying, be braver, really, mm. you know. Try not to just tick the boxes. And I don't think I'm being disingenuous when I say that Almost any kind of steps taken towards embracing the LGBTQ community are positive. I think most of them are. You know, I often get asked, how do you feel about, say, a shop during London Pride? And I'm sorry we're being Londonist, but, you know, that's yeah, yeah. what I see most. Other Prides are available. But there's about 100 <laughs> by it's about hundred around the UK now. You know, how do I feel when I see a shop sticking a rainbow flag in the window. Lots of my more radical political colleagues will say, oh, it's just tokenism, you know. And I hear that argument. Uh, but, you know, I, I hear stories of young people who work in those shops, who are struggling with their sexual and gender identity. And when they see that rainbow flag in the shop, and when they hear the shoppers go in the shop going, oh, it's great, you know, that you're doing this stuff. If it makes her or him or them just that little bit braver to be able to be their, their authentic selves in the workplace, then maybe just sticking a rainbow flag in the window in July is OK. And I can tell you, I've had my own experiences with this. I remember a couple of years ago, my husband and I, um, we'd just, we'd been to... Pride. We'd been on the march and we'd got our rainbow T-shirts on and all this kind of stuff. And um, some of my colleagues went on partying, but because we're at the older end of the spe <laughs> spectrum, my husband and I decided to go to Sainsbury's to get some tea. And um, 
we were in Sainsbury's on Clapham High Street. And I'd forgotten we were still in our T-shirts. And we went to the deli counter. And this ab- this woman who I saw every couple of weeks and just kind of went, you know, I'll have a quarter of ham and some of this and some of that. <laughs> and she completely transformed. And she saw my T-shirt. She said, oh, have you been on the march today? She said, oh, I'd love to go on the march. Said, I, c- I can't do the accent. She said, I don't know where she's... I'm going to go to... Think she was kind of South London, but anyway, and she said, "Oh, I'd love to have gone on the march." Do you know what? I'm not sure I'm a hundred percent straight myself. I was like, "Okay, overshare, but <laughs> whatever." And um, and then she went, "And my brother, I'm pretty certain he's gay." <laughs> and he was like, "Why has this never come out before?" I've walked into Sainsbury's today wearing a rainbow yeah. T-shirt, and you've suddenly opened your heart to me. And do you know what? That's what I mean. So I mean, you know, those little things can sometimes make a huge difference. So, uh, yeah, um, I'd rather they did more than tokenism. I'd rather they were braver. But, you know, I guess it's every little bit helps. Sorry, that's not a play on Sainsbury's, but it almost is, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. It really is. <laughs> but that's fine. That's fine. I, I, I do agree. Um, the, the, the smaller changes and the points you're making about um, uh, the brands looking inwards and starting to make those changes... Um, do you do you almost feel that they need an internal person to champion that and to push it forward? And do you need to get to that get to that one person to start doing it, or is it how is sort of what sort of the best approach for them? I think that's a really good point, and, and I suppose that goes back to the other objective that we have that I mentioned, which is about role models, because. Um, I know it's not easy to be that one voice in the meeting that says, actually, when we're planning our next campaign, let's do this. Um, And so she, he or they, you know, may not be LGBTQ, you know, and I'm always humbled when I meet somebody who isn't LGBTQ, who wants to, to do that. You know, because I'm sometimes a bit worried that it sounds like I'm doing it for my own benefit when, when, when I talk about stuff. Uh, you know, I'm sharing my demons with you because um, it seems self-serving, doesn't it? Why, why, you know, why can't I just get on with it? So uh, I'm, yeah, I'm just massively humbled when it's not an LGBTQ person who's leading it and I think it is relevant that that's why one of the reasons why we do free role model training Uh, I know this sounds like I've gone off a tangent but it's relevant we do free role model training not surprisingly because one of our objectives is to service role models and so we knew that we in order to do that we had to empower people you know how how do I be a role model Um, and almost every it's a workshop thing, James. It's not a, as I was told to call it. It's not a chalk and talk. That's what they. That's what when you kind of sit and yeah. on receive. Um, it's much more of an engaging thing. In fact, some people have said it's a bit like very light touch therapy. If that makes <laughs> it like light touch group therapy. Okay. Yeah. Um, but almost every workshop I think that we've done has had one straight ally in it. Um, and you forget, you know, that our straight allies sometimes struggle to be their authentic selves at work. I think they're almost always women, and you read into that whatever you want. 
but yeah, when I when I've asked about the groups, and I, I don't go to them all myself now, but when I've asked about the makeup of the groups, I'm told who goes, and you know, you hear straight allies mentioned, and mostly they're women, so that, that's interesting so that, that they. I presume find it empowering to go mm. and sit alongside gays, lesbians, bi's, transgender people, and hear their stories so that they can maybe learn from that and empower themselves in the workplace. So, um, so to answer your question, yeah, I think I, I think it does take a person, one person, to kind of be the catalyst for change, but then. You know, the other thing that we write in our aims and objectives is to do whatever we can, and, and, I, and this is the toughest bit probably of the objectives that we've set ourselves, um, then the rest is about working in an inclusive, open environment. Because, you know, if you gave me the courage to speak up in a meeting, then there would be long-lasting, dangerous, negative consequences if when I did that, what I heard from everybody else wasn't supportive. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And and I don't want to get... Well, we, we could have the homogeneous, heterogeneous argument. I don't know whether you've kind of done that. Um, as in, it shouldn't be that everybody is massively supportive because I, I absolutely support the concept of heterogeneous teams, as in teams of people who are different. Um, so it would be great if you had empowered me to raise that. There was challenge, but only challenge in the way that any idea would be challenged to make sure that the best idea is the one that surfaces and the best idea is the one that lives and breathes and takes flight. Um, so, yeah, I think we can do stuff to empower people to speak up, uh, but there's, I think there's still m more work to be done to make sure that when they do speak up, that those ideas are allowed to, you know, they're given oxygen and they're allowed to fly. Um, but then there are other things that we do, which we can probably com come on to talk about, because I, I absolutely acknowledge that we have to probably pro provide practical support. And that, again, we started doing that back in 2016 when, when, when we wrote this thing called Outvertising, which you can also Google and find. And it's a hopefully helpful publication that tells brands how to do this. How should I put together LGBTQ inclusive content? And Outvertising, it's written down uh, with a kind of step-by-step -step guide on how to do it. And later this year, you'll be able to download Outvertising 2, which, as its name suggests, <laughs> is the second version, the sequel, uh, but seriously, much, much bigger now with lots of case histories, lots of industry leader interviews, uh, looking at the ROI of diversity, all those kind of things that we get mm. asked, hopefully answering all those thorny questions. So we've given you the motivation and we've given you the collateral if you need to put together the argument internally inside your organisation. Yeah, and it, it's, it's definitely great to empower someone within an organisation. How would you say um, is the best way to deal with um, challenges from the top down? So your, your, your senior team who don't agree with it, who 
aren't open to making change and then that suppresses your internal champion your internal person from making the changes how 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 should they address it and how can how can more people help make the change there uh, i wish i was in more of those conversations uh, to help me have a better understanding of, of how to respond to it. My guess is that the majority of objections, because of the relatively politically correct environment that we work in, uh, the majority of those objections are projected quite rationally. And the kind of objection you would get is, oh, it's not right for my target audience, um, it's not appropriate for the brand positioning, you know, all those kind of things. I think, ironically, they're the easiest ones to debate back, thanks to things like advertising, because that's what it's all about. It's yeah. about the stat that I gave you earlier on when I mentioned that if you have a focus on a younger target audience, the 18 to 25s, then over half of that audience doesn't think in traditional gay straight terms anymore. So, you know, uh, uh, and if you were specifically saying, well, there's not that many LGBTQ people in the UK, I've already said that you know, those statistics are wrong. Um, so the more rational debates, I find it easier to argue back and therefore I would find it easier to empower anybody to have that same argument. If anybody was courageous enough to argue on some kind of un-PC moral, I don't know, moral thing, I think that is the tougher one to debate because it's just a clash of emotions, isn't it? I think it's right mm. that LGBTQ lifestyles should be portrayed in advertising. Well, I think it's wrong. I think it should be illegal. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I find that tougher to debate. Hmm. Uh, it's, it is the classic Brexitation debate, isn't it? I want to stay. You want to go. <laughs> uh, what do I say? Um, and I'd hate to have to... I'd hate, I'd hate it to become a political politically correct argument if somebody was prejudiced enough to kind of have that debate <clears throat> perhaps not surprisingly they tend to not reach my ears if anybody knows a bit about me before they meet me you know uh, maybe I was going to say they, they tend <laughs> not to kind of go I think you know I think you should be hanged <laughs> or I you know or that kind of stuff um, so yeah uh, <laughs> I think, uh, I repeat, it's, it's easier to have a rational debate. Yeah. It's much harder to have a more emotional one. Definitely. A more moral one. What do you... Are there any brands right now who, who are doing it right, who are doing good things, anything that comes to mind, any specific campaigns that you've seen? Um, I'm pleased to say that there are lots doing it right. Um, there are lots who are trailblazers. Um, so a personal favourite, which I think is, uh, it might be a bit of a plannery, geeky thing. And I think you and I have talked about this in the past uh, when you've asked me about, about this, is one from a couple of years ago 
for Rouse Honey. Yeah. You knew I was going to yeah. say this. So this is a personal favourite. Maybe because it's, it's that classic lateral thinking. So if you can put a link to the link. ad in the kind of podcast notes so that people can watch it. Um, so the kind of planary story is honey... Uh, I've never worked on a honey brand, so this is what I've been told and been uh, and learned. Honey is a really difficult product to sell because I bet you and I, when we go to the supermarket, we buy the supermarket's own label honey because honey is honey is honey, isn't it? I mean, you know, and there are only two brands in the category, uh, only two major brands, which I bet you can name. Rouse and Gales are the two major brands. Uh, and... So when one of those, Rouse, was briefing their agency to come up with a campaign, it really has to be about standout. How do you make my brand of honey stand out from the other six or seven that are going to be on the shelf? You know, Because there'll be own-label standard honey, own-label manuka honey, own-label lavender honey, you know, or I don't know, whatever it is. So it's, not, it's, not, it's not brands, it's just ingredients, isn't it? It's commoditization of the first order. Um, and they, well, when they briefed the agency to do it, and the agency went back with this story uh, about uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, which we all know from our nursery rhymes is about honey. But when the agency unveiled that they wanted it to be about the Three Bears, and did everybody know that there was another meaning for the word bear? Which I don't know whether everybody did you know what bear no. meant? Do you know now? No. Oh, you still don't know. No, it's okay, fine. Um, so a bear in the gay world is a hairy man, and some men find hairy men attractive. Um, that, it's a it, it's a thing, you know. Yeah. But, uh, so you can imagine the conversation. Like I'm pitching it to you now. Okay, James, we're going to have three bears. Except they're not the kind of brown furry bears that you think they are. <laughs> These are thirty-something furry men who like each other. How do you feel about that? And I can't imagine what, what it would have been like to be a fly on the wall when they were discussing this whole campaign. So the pr- production, I believe, I hope I've got it right, was predominantly straight, as in writers. I, th- I think one person in the production was a gay man. Uh, But they did cast three authentic bears, as in hairy gay men, as the three bears themselves. Um, And and I think it's no accident that the stuff that made it to air, uh, that, that they filmed, the majority of the scripted stuff did not make it to air. But the majority of stuff that did get to air was what was ad libbed during the set because these three guys so authentic being themselves slightly camp have you seen it yet mm-hmm. you, uh, okay slightly camp very funny to me you know way of the it's just the the, the the scene that you'll see if you get a chance to look at the link is these three men and very quickly you work out they living together which in itself is a bit risque <laughs> let's be honest you know you've got a typical binary relationship but no no these guys there's three gay men living together <laughs> oh wow yeah who goes to bed first in that relationship anyway um and um they're cooking and stuff uh and yeah i, I 
I thought it was really funny. Uh, but you've heard me say that sometimes the LGBTQ community doesn't speak with one voice. And, that, and I absolutely think that's right because we are growing up very quickly. We fi- we're finding our own voice and we don't all think the same thing. And when that campaign came out, I, for one, was very vocal in support of it because I thought it was funny. It, it presented gay lifestyles, LGBTQ lifestyles, to people in a non-threatening way. I could imagine, you know, my husband and I haven't been blessed with kids, but I could imagine if I had a kid, I could explain that to a kid. You know, it's just men who live together, they love each other, they just happen to be not men and women. You know, there was nothing overtly sexual about it. You know, it was playful. Um, I thought it was great. But a lot of my friends, friends, yeah, seriously, in the LGBTQ community thought it was wrong and that it was just more stereotyping. Because, as I said, bear is a stereotype in the same way that twink is a stereotype. Go and look these words up if you don't know what they are. <laughs> you know, and a, a camp is a stereotype. And they didn't like it. So, yeah, uh, that's, that's one of my favourites. And incredibly brave. And back to the kind of ROI thing, for a brand that is just one of however many on the supermarket shelf where you normally just reach out for the supermarket-owned label, it really created standout. You know, the reach, the organic reach that that advertising generated was just in unimaginable. Uh, so congratulations to Rouse and BMB, who the agency who made the work so fantastic. Um, I, I'm sorry for that long ramble because I just think it's a great no, piece, yeah, of, I, piece I, of work. Yeah. But I, I have to give a massive amount of respect to Lloyd's Bank for the work that they do. And I think they probably epitomise the brand that is having a truly joined up approach to inclusion and diversity. And I know that some people knock what they've done. You know, I happen to think that their mental health work has been uh, really quite groundbreaking too. Um, I think it's no coincidence that certainly one year, I've lost track, they were voted number one in the Stonewall Equality Index of employers. Um, So great and still doing groundbreaking work. They they are the, the kind of trailblazer in terms of consistency so they consistently you know champion BAME equality mental health LGBTQ stuff Uh, so well done to them um I think one of the most groundbreaking pieces of work that I saw was uh, a piece of work for Nike in the states this is also a few years old so I'll I'll encourage you to share the link for this which was some work that they did for the transgender community um and i won't spoil it but it's quite a visceral piece of work that i'd never seen anything like it in terms of uh, a transgender athlete uh, it's a story of one of the world's first recognized transgender athletes mm-hmm. uh, who nike was sponsoring so you know kind of uh, I salute Nike for both making the film, but also actually kind of sponsoring yeah. the individual too. I've, I've been a really, really big fan of all the Nike's um, commercials and advertising recently. They're, they're always taking risks and doing things that make them stand out. Um, the Colin Kaepernick yeah, and sure. Serena Williams recently. Yeah. 
brilliant, brilliant pieces. There, there are brands that, that are doing it right and doing some great things, and that's good to see. And I think it is about taking risks. Would, would you agree there that, that brands do need to, to take risks with this because they, they might think that um, they might be worried about the backlash, as you mentioned earlier? Yeah, I encourage them to take risks, uh, but uh, if I was working on the team, those risks would be well thought through, so mm-hmm. therefore calculated. Um, but it's, I mean, that's got less to do with being LGBTQ friendly, yeah. and it's got more to do with making your brand cut through, you know. We could have a different conversation about the attention economy that we exist in. And so um, I think that's the main reason for taking risks, uh, because you want to stand out. You want to make a difference. You want to make an emotional connection. You know, you just need to read all of the current thinking about how ad- how advertising works. Um, so do that first. Fine. So we we're, we're going to make sure our work is brave. Now we're talking about making some LGBTQ stuff. LGBTQ friendly stuff but I repeat you know I encourage you to make it appealing to everybody yeah not just to the LGBTQ community because I, I don't want to be ghettoized I like to be recognized I like to be you know uh, portrayed authentically in uh, advertising um, so take risks that way um, absolutely and you will be rewarded in all the ways that you can imagine, you will be rewarded uh, in terms of mem- memorability, which is important. So you will get more value from your advertising. You will drive up consideration. You know, it all leads to proper pounds, ROMI, you know, return on marketing investment. Um, and I believe that if you have a brand purpose, uh, and most brands are moving that way, if not have already gone that way, and most brand purposes have some kind of altruistic value, because we we realise that it's not sufficient to only take from society nowadays. We have to give something back to society. So if your brand is one of those, and it has some kind of altruistic purpose, then connection on an emotional level particularly you know with progressive consumers and showing that you understand them is is an important part of that brand purpose Hmm. and are are there any sort of initiatives that um you're running with pride am um i i know you've um you you do the brand makeover and brand makeover awards Uh, is is there anything else there that, that you do to tackle the issue well, let's talk about makeover because I, I we've, we've only done it twice, and I'm still a little bit conflicted about that, in the sense that I really hope that it makes a, a difference, you know, because we're all volunteers, we have no money, and so we have to make sure that the time and energy that we invest in these things is actually making a difference. I think it is, otherwise I wouldn't keep suggesting that we do it because I've seen brands that have participated in the process go on a journey um, and just to explain a bit about what that is because I know y- you know a bit about it um, 
it, it, it came out of some research, informal re research we did as we were growing up into that fear thing that I mentioned. You know, why, why aren't you doing more LGBTQ content? And there was a bit of a spiral of fear that we spotted sometimes, which was when you and I were chatting about, you know, it sometimes takes somebody to have that I Spartacus moment and speak up and go, let's do this. Um, but if they start to be shot down, then it does, it can become a spiral of negativity. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I felt that in an unscientific study of people I spoke to, that maybe on balance, the culprits for allowing that negativity to win over was the agency side of the partnership in terms of brand owner and creative agency. And it seemed to be because, on balance, the agency were scared that if something did go wrong, they would take the blame for it. And so they didn't want to run that risk. So it was easier, it was the easier, easier route out to kind of say, okay, we won't do it. Um, so what we wanted to do was find a way to try and de-risk creating LGBTQ-friendly content. And that's, that was how the competition came about. Uh, it's an idea that's been done before. You might have heard of the Chip Shop Awards. That's, that's work that you produce that never ran. So that was the first idea. So one way to de-risk it is say, you don't have to run this mm. work. You don't have to... Have to um, suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, which is probably misquoting Shakespeare without, without <laughs> a doubt. Um, that's the first thing. Also, you know, um, brand owners were reluctant to pay their agencies to experiment with this stuff. And if the agencies were really keen on it, they were reluctant to speculatively do the work as well. So there was a whole kind of financial conspiracy yeah. running against us as well so the work didn't have to run the second thing we said was you don't have to submit finished work you know how creative agencies love to kind of labor over the concept before they've even shot the actual re real thing they try and make it look as real as possible you don't have to to do that and then because we are a proper not-for-profit existing on virtually no money we took the last i hope objective barrier away which was it's free to enter this competition as well. So de-risk it completely. So you can have an you can have a you can experiment with taking your brand into an LGBTQ space um, in in a, a an inclusive, non-threatening way, and see how it might work. Because we'll find a jury of smart people to look at the work and to give you their considered opinion on it. And then, so we ran it for the first time in 2017 and, uh, you know, blown away by the response we got to it. And as a result of that, the momentum that was created in 2018 meant that we never went out to seek it, but we were supported with half a million pounds worth of free media for the winners to actually make sure that they could amplify the work that they had created. So um, 
back to my early point, I hope it does de-risk. I hope it does encourage brands that maybe were sitting on the fence and didn't have the momentum to go and try this, to actually do it, and then to go on and maybe it become, I hope, as I said earlier, a sustainable piece of their marketing strategy. And so that's one of the things we we do. I've also mentioned in passing advertising that will be updated in 2019. So a real hands-on guide to producing LGBTQ inclusive advertising aimed at a mainstream audience. And now at least twice a year, we run uh, quite a big creative review where we invite quite a large group, a dozen or so at least, uh, creative directors, brand leaders to get together and review the past six months worth of LGBTQ themed-ish content and, you know, provide feedback and guidance on that. So in essence, we're trying to create a data bank of resources that people can tap into to yet again de-risk, empower people to do braver work. Yeah, de- definitely. Um, I- I'm going to sort of finish on uh, qu- quite a generic question, an open-ended one. Um, where, where do you sort of see the rest of 2019 going in the future um, from a diversity perspective and with Pride AM? Um, I'm both excited and worried uh, where the world is going. Um, I am perhaps most mindful of my straight white colleagues who are becoming quite vocal, and I kind of don't blame them. Um, the word that they use most often to me, privately, is um, irrelevant. They're worried that they are becoming irrelevant. And this is not just an LGBTQ thing, this is a Me Too, Time To, BAME thing, you know. Um, and, and I think it does bring us back to the populism thing. I think that the diversity and inclusion debate um, has to be fully inclusive now, uh, I think. Um, I'm super conscious about maybe being preachy, so I try not to do that. So that's the stuff that worries me a bit, that we don't alienate people. We have to take people on a journey and that could be the older me speaking because lots of my younger colleagues are quite they're 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 much more energetic in their desire for more change faster than than maybe I am uh, because I've I, I look outside the UK and I see environments that are way less welcoming than we have here the one thing I would love to, to do, and I don't know whether we will achieve it this year, but uh, it's an objective that I've informally set ourselves, is to find a way to properly audit the UK's advertising output. Because it's all right for me to sit here and say, you know, I think that uh, we need to over-represent 
the LGBTQ community in the same vein as I would say we should overrepresent the BAME community but um, in our advertising. But I've got no statistics to tell you what, what what's the starting point. Yeah. Um, there was a study a few years ago, but it was a sample of the top 30 advertisers in the UK and that work was looked at uh, by a human being and then was kind of tagged and stuff and it showed underrepresentation as you might imagine but i would like there to be a proper authoritative audit of uk paid advertising output and to understand exactly how many black faces there are in advertising exactly what roles they're playing because it's not just about you know being there yeah. and ticking a box it's about that role model thing. So when you see a black woman in, a, in an ad, what kind of role is she playing in an ad? In the same, you know, when you see a gay man in an ad, what kind of role is he playing or a lesbian or a transgender person? So that is what I would love to, to do in the next few years is to partner with somebody who can make that happen so that we can get a genuine picture of how inclusive we are. And then when we know how inclusive we are, we know where we need to go to make it right. Brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing all that with me, Mark. Um, where, where can people find out a little bit more about you and what you're doing uh, with, with Pride AM and, and other things? So uh, we'd love and welcome anybody to come and get involved. You can be as involved or as little involved as you like. Um, the best place to go is the website, which is prideam.org. It's super simple. Um, I did say if you want to be actively involved, you don't even have to work in advertising and marketing. Just like it, love it, be passionate about it, want to change it, have an opinion about it. That's the main thing. If you do work for an ad agency or if you work for a brand, that's a bonus. Uh, we have some students who are studying advertising as well who come along. Brilliant. So all are welcome. Uh, that is the main place. Uh, and we meet up twice a month. Uh, at the moment, we're only in London, apologies, um, but we are on the verge of setting up uh, a northern uh, group uh, based in Manchester, which we hope to get off the ground this year. Uh, we meet twice a month in London, once a month, which is where we get together and compare all of the lob lobbying work streams that we do. And once a, mo once a month, I've got to be honest, in the pub. As Perfect. well, just to sit and have a beer. But beer is not mandatory. You can drink <laughs> whatever you like or don't like. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much and we'll speak soon.